Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Guys, welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde, and boy, do we have a special guest today. My main man, Todd Cashton, is in the house. What's up, Todd? Hey, good to be here. Oh, great to have you here. So, Todd, uh, you know, we were talking about this before the show, but, you know, I want to remind the new listeners of this. Uh, greatness Machine, we're about two things. We're about people who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And my main man, Todd, here is neither short of passion nor greatness. Uh, welcome to the show, my friend. I'm so glad I'm in the inner circle of you guys already. <laughs> so um, I was telling Todd, um, you know, we were on pre-show and I said, you know, most of the people, if you go back through, we've done, I don't know, almost 200 episodes, probably 95% of them have been people I know through some part of my life and I have background on them. But Todd's, uh, this, you're, a, you're of the newer breed. We, we went outside of my comfort zone and we're like, hey man, we got we to gotta get, we got to go find more awesome people for the show. And so... You know, I was like late night, getting ready to crash, probably watching some, you know, Netflix. And I said, no, I'll go check out Net. I'll go check out Instagram. And and there was a reel that comes up, and I can't remember whose podcast it was, but I see Todd talking about his new book, the, uh, it, uh, all about insubordination. And I was like, oh, dude, the art of insubordination. This 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 sounds incredible. I got I got to meet this guy. So I had my team hit you up, and bro, here we are. <laughs> I feel yeah. the I feel the bear hug from afar, and and not and not the, like a typical guy male script where I'm patting your bat and trying to burp you. Like no. it's a real oxytocin enhanced hug, heart to heart, my friend, heart to heart. Uh, <laughs> so, um, 
For those of you that are not familiar with Todd, I'm going to go through the formal bio for a hot second here. But he's an author, speaker, professor of psychology at George Mason University. I mean, this is this is a guy that we are going to have a great show with today. Founded the Wellbeing Lab at GMU, produced over 210 peer peer-reviewed journals and articles, writes a curious blog on psychology today, which is an incredible publication, and you've published five books, Curious, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Designing Positive Psychology, and your latest book, The Artist, Art of Insubordination. Man, you are a busy dude. Like Plus after. three daughters. Plus three daughters, and two of them are twins. Oh, oh yeah, and I forgot. You and I have something in common. We're both twins. Oh, you're t- wait, is your are you fraternal or identical? I'm a thank God almighty I'm a fraternal twin because my brother's a fucking maniac. But yeah, you're a twin, isn't that correct? <laughs> All right, so I'm a twin and my brother is a freaking hermit, introverted, <laughs> quiet, reticent, the exact opposite of me. So that's interesting that you are your brother is the wild impulsive one. Oh, dude. So I'm watching. Remember that TV show? Or I don't know if you know the TV show. There's a TV show like a docudrama that came out with uh, about Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. That was really popular this fall. Yeah. Or, or like in the spring or something. Yeah, dude, I'm watching that. I'm like, God, dude, Tommy Lee reminds me of my brother so much. <laughs> <laughs> if that says any, I swear to God, I was like, I was like, he reminds like anyone knows my brother's like, yeah, Mike's kind of like that. The fucking dude, absolute shit show maniac. It is. It is great not to be that person, but fantastic to be on the periphery of a social circle that has one of those characters. <laughs> you know, it's funny. People meet me and they're like, like, "Your your brother is the crazy one." I'm like, "Dude, I'm the fucking straight one of the two of us." You know. <laughs> so, so yeah, dude, I saw that. I forgot that. I, I met I, or last night I was reading that up. So so you're dude. There are a lot of twins in your family. Twins in my family, bro. I will tell you, and I don't know if you had this experience, but being a twin is kind of like this thing. Like for at least for me, like it's a really weird connection to share a birthday with someone for your whole life it kind of it, there was moments where i hated it i was like dude fuck this i want my own birthday you know <laughs> but now i appreciate it you know it's cool as you age you get to celebrate with someone else have you did you have any sort of experience like that well i think and i'm seeing i'm learning a lot because my twin daughters are now 15 um i just dropped them off to sophomore year of high school today so i'm learning through them having retrospective nightmares of what it was like to be a twin. And one of the hardest things that I see through them and I experienced was you really have to carve your own niches. You, you can't be simulacrums of each other. So it's like, who's going to get who's going to get the flag for intelligence? Who's going to get it for creativity? Who's going to get it for social popularity, being a raconteur and telling stories, athletics? And, and we really did that our whole lives. And there was never there was never a flag that we both shared. And I hadn't thought that much until the past few years of how much that's molded my character to really be uniqueness seeking. And it makes sense because here I am studying how to create healthy rebellions, but it fits with a whole lifetime of trying to rebel with my brother and how the rest of the world viewed us as a single entity. And neither one of us would allow that to happen. Were you guys identical or fraternal? Fraternal, but Check this out. So I have a maxim, which is Mother Nature Smokes Crack, where we have the same teeth configuration. So our dentists and orthodontists, like they, they take that mold of your teeth and ours are exactly the same. So that's one crack level one for Mother Nature Two, our beauty marks or birthmarks, depending if you're self-loving or self-loathing, what you call them. They are mirror images of each other. So you could see the ones that are on my face. My brother has the mirror image of those. I'll call them beauty marks because I'm in a good mood right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so that's 
strange. It's just, you know, things that happen in the womb. It's just like, how does that biologically, it makes no sense. Yeah. So, so it's funny. It's like, you're like, God's like, I'm going to do all the traits that big people remember you. And I'm going to copy them almost perfectly over here so that it confuses people. (laughs) And I'm going to invert it just so that when cannabis becomes legal, you're going to get really into it. (laughs) (laughs) Just the second it becomes legal, not a moment before. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. For all of our listeners. Yeah. There's no chance that when it was illegal, we ever considered it as an option. (laughs) Nothing but Cheetos and cheese balls. So, man, so is your brother, uh, He is he into psychology too, or I would take it he's not? He is much more hyper-intelligent than me, but um, it's a great example of book smarts versus pragmatics. And I was the one that persevered, that never stopped. He was getting his PhD in economics at George Mason, um, and then he decided to go all what's called all but dissertation. He quit. He just couldn't finish his dissertation, and uh, and I'm the one that I just I just never stopped. So I've never been physically strong in terms of I never learned how to fight, uh, but I was the type of person where you could never I would never stop. So if you were pummeling me at five years of age as a bully, you would just have to do it until your hands hurt. Rocky three strategy against Clubber Lang. Yeah. And just go and go and eventually be like, all right, you're a pretty tough kid, even though you don't know how to fight, I'm gonna leave you. I'm impressed. That's yeah, like, kind of that's 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 the if they make a movie of my life, that's the storyline. Yeah, you have to beat him till he's knocked out. Like there's no there's there there's there's too much fight in that guy. <laughs> yeah. So um so yeah, so so Walk, take us to the origin story. You got a twin bro. You're growing up. Did you grow up in, in uh, Virginia? Where'd you grow up? No, we grew up in New York, outside of New York City. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black. It was about 95% black. And when you're growing up in the 70s and 80s in um, a lower socioeconomic environment by a single mom, um, it's a pretty challenging situation. And and uh, And I've talked to a lot of my friends about... You know, code switching is not race specific. It's basically is to what degree are you the demographic minority in wherever you live? So if you're a religious person in an atheist community, if you are Jewish in a Mormon community, and for me being, you know, two white twin little twigs that live in a predominantly black community, you learn you learn of what's going to make sure that you stay alive the next day in school and then what are you really interested in and then the challenge of figuring out who are you because you have these multiple identities in terms of the public presentation of yourself and then that's really underneath the surface of what you're really interested in and that's a pretty big challenge and it's made me appreciate the number of people in society who have to pretend to be something they're not whether it's being gay living in the middle east or or in you know the Southeast in the United States, you don't have to travel too far. Or if it ends up being someone that's religious in the modern world where you're seeing this slow systematic decline in people that identify with religion or spirituality. And there's a lot of societal trends that are, if you can really harness your origin story, you can really develop a lot more compassion for a lot more people. So do you think that that, um, you know, having grown up in that environment, was that kind of what triggered your interest in well-being. I, I read somewhere that your mission is to increase the amount of well-being in the world. Like, 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 how did that kind of come into play? Yeah. Uh, so who knows what's a uh, you know 
a, a nice coherent narrative that I created. But here's the story that I'm sticking to, which I'm not sure is factual, which is that uh, my father walked out of my mom when I, when my brother and I were two, so I didn't have a father figure growing up. That's a challenge as a boy and a man of not having a role model of what it means to be a man and now being a father. So learning by trial and error is the most inefficient way possible, which is why you need podcasts such as The Greatness Machine to help people who don't have access to those mentors. And then my mom passed away when I was 12. Oh, wow. And I was raised by my grandmother. And so, again, not having someone, someone two generations apart that just could not understand the challenges of you're trying to figure out, like, what's the script for being in a romantic relationship? And then how do you develop and forge strong friendships? And how do you how, how do you tell a story where you're funny and playful? How do you kind of seduce teachers so that if you have a C, you can actually get them to move up to a B? Um, how do you get into college by mastering an interview? These are not things that my grandmother could teach me about um, or was uninterested because she already raised three kids. And so I learned a lot um, on my own and through developing a good cohort of friends. And I wanted to do to do research and write books and write a newsletter to help people that are in a similar situation as me, whether they're being neglected, ignored, or they live in a opportunity poor environment, can they get access to the resources that can help them in a, the most efficient and effective way possible, improve the quality of their lives and also not be an asshole to other people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear 
with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. Yeah, it's wow. So that's, dude, that's gnarly. And so when were you always, I mean, obviously you love to write, or I would assume you love to write given the amount of writing that you produce. Um, did Were you always uh, a writer? Like, was that, or is that something that you kind of picked up later in life? How did, how did that come to be? Yeah, I think I've always been a writer slash dissident. So there's a story. I had my 30th high school reunion a couple of weeks ago. I didn't go, but people were telling me stories of what I was like. And they were telling me the story that in fifth grade, when we had to read our stories in class, I would put advertisements in my stories of things that I wanted people to get me for my birthday or for Hanukkah <laughs> man to give me. And so I'd have these kind of strange stories about toys. And they were, they were really perverted and distorted stories that would be in the middle and pause. And then what happened is I would always add characters that were the name of people that I liked in the school in these advertisements in the middle of... This could be like biology class. I'm talking about the Manhattan Project with Oppenheimer, and I've got a story about um, you know Skittle, Skittles and whatchamacallit candy bars that are in there, and, kind of, and I'm putting my, my friends' names in the story. So it, it was very interesting because... I'm glad you asked this question. So I'd go to lunch, and then kids would say, hey, listen... Is there any chance I can get into your advertisement in the next time that you read something in class? So it's this weird, subversive form of popularity, not because of my athleticism, not because of my looks or my sense of humor. It's really because of my writing. And I got reinforced really early. Teachers loved it. They used to crack up and try to hide their laughter. The kids loved it. And then they just made me like, you know, more of a public performer. And I think that's somewhat of the inroads of kind of, uh, if you get sufficient reinforcement and it ties in with your interests, it's a it's a great, you know, pathway to figure out like this is something I should be kind of fitting into my life for the long hood. I love that. So you're like you're like th- dropping a little bit of a like GI Joe inside of the the the, the article for class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And it's and the story is about my my essays about volcanoes in Iceland. <laughs> Yeah. And if you happen to uh, have uh, the Cobra, you know, G.I. Joe, like I, I would like that for my birthday wrapped in this type of wrapping paper. Uh, so you went to your 30th high school reunion. Hey, uh, I, I have a question about that. Do, do you mind if we go there? Oh, we can go anywhere. So, um, we're, we're, I mean, I, I would tell you being a guy, look, I saw you on stage. You're kind of jacked. And, and I read that you like to drink whiskey and you work out purely for steak and whiskey. So I take it that you take care of yourself. But, you know, I went to my 20th high school reunion and I was like, whoa, there was some fucking train wrecks there. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine the 30th. <laughs> oh, it gets worse every decade. It gets it's a horror show. Um, it's it's terrible. I'm not sure where to go with this because I'm, de- I'm definitely outing anybody by name. All I'm going to say is, is that 
in 2022 with the amount of knowledge we know about exercise. And yes, streaming services appeared, the Netflix, the Hulus, and the HBOs. Um, it blows my mind that there are human beings that do not have exercise multiple times per week. It, it's just, and then when, and then when those same people have that, it's been a while since I had one, but those supersized big gulps where you need two hands to hold it. It's kind of like a a ninety six ounce beer. That like you, you, there's like there's no way to look James Bond esque and cool standing with one leg against the wall, sipping your ninety six ounce big gulp or ninety six ounce drink. And nope. um, I'm I still can't get my hands around how people in society don't have this. And again, this is kind of part of my mission. I want to figure out what are the motivational levers to pull for people that effectively kind of gets people to realize, listen, you want to do this because, hey, you want to see your grandkids. You want to go to the Grand Canyon. You want to be able to take eight-hour car trips, which means you need a core because you know eventually your back will be so painful. You're only going to be taking you know 30-minute car trips to the farmer's market, and that's it. So whatever the motivational levels are, or social comparison, right? If you find that the, I don't know if this is politically correct, the nerdy kid from your high school is now incredibly fit, attractive, and well-off to do, is that upward social comparison the motivational lever for you or does that or for someone else is it essentially is that um getting the doctor receipt at your annual at your annual visit where they tell you that you're physically fit that professional approval is your motivational lever and and one of the complicated things about science is we figure out what works for the average but it's really you have to figure out at the individual level right what, what are going to be for some people it's sticks, for some people it's carrots, and figuring it out is this a lifelong a lifelong expedition because you'll constantly be meeting new people. Yeah, it's uh, I love it. I'd love I'd love to hear, uh, but you didn't answer the question. Was there there were some train wrecks there? Oh my god! <laughs> and the thing about it is, it's not like you see in the movie. So it's not so. The divorces are often people that are healthy because they made assertive decisions of I want to improve my life. And the people that actually have really, for lack of a better word, like a lame jobs, well, those people, they're working to live and then they're hanging out in Bali and Indonesia and they're going to Thailand. So it's just it's just people that are bl- so bland where they they live two minutes away from their childhood household oh. and they're going to the same pizza place and they're hanging out with the same people. And they're having the same conversations um, and they're just they're a mess. Like they haven't seen a dermatologist in 27 years. And you're just you could just you could see skin cancer bubbles on the surface <laughs> and they're moving as you're talking to them. And you just want there's just so many you want to give them a checklist of there are so many things you need to fix yourself that I'm just going to hand you this list, wish you luck, and I'm going to go back to the bar and get another old-fashioned. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah, it's like amazing. <laughs> You're like, you know, I am on a mission to increase the world's well-being, and the list for you, it's just endless. So I don't know where to begin. I'm going to go do my thing. Oh, man. I appreciate you humoring me on that. Um, I, I When I went to my 20-year, there was a buddy of mine that shows up and one of my other buddies is like, Hey, look who just showed up. And I'm like, I'm like, is that one of our teachers? <laughs> 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 
and, I, and I'm not kidding you. I wasn't just being an asshole. I actually like I was like, was that a 60 year old man trapped in or a 30 year old, eight year old man trapped in a 60 year old man's body? Yeah, it was, it was not no bueno. Well, um, you know, sorry, I apologize because this because this, this is a fun conversation. What's interesting <laughs> to me is people, as you were saying, like people, people that choose fashion styles and lifestyles that match the adults when we were kids, right? So when you see people with those librarian, like big, atrocious, like fake pearls, like big, you know, necklaces, and and they've got this kind of like off color blue purple like outfits that doesn't have, you know, it's basically hiding your body so that no, not even a chimpanzee or a gorilla would be attracted to you. It's uh, it's just amazing that people make these choices, and then just you just wonder of. What are you reading? What are you listening to? Who's giving you advice? Who are you asking for advice? And does anyone ever give you feedback? And it's just, I think it's really important for people to offer you really critical, candid feedback. Maybe this is the New Yorker in me. Um, I get this regularly because people know I've got titanium coated skin, but I love when people tell me what sucks about me, in a, especially in a playful manner. And then I, I get to sit and ruminate about it. I'm like, yeah. 80 percent of the time they're right yeah I, i'm i'm like that's called character and i have plenty of it so li- leave me be <laughs> but no I, I i appreciate that i you know honestly i think you know i was i was working with a coach and and uh a year and a half ago a really amazing coach and he was like look man a lot of people just want to go to sleep and just exist and i and when i see that i'm like that person they're asleep you know this is this is just subsiding and and for me personally, I'm like, yeah, go fill up the bathtub with with hot water and grab me a a, a blade because I'll I'll take myself out before that happens. Like the like, I'm not going to sleep, you know. Like like this, you got one life to live. Let's get after it, you know. Let's make it happen. So yeah, yeah. Hey, wait, can, can I can I bounce off that one? Because so this this just started interesting me yesterday. So I teach my first class this semester tomorrow, and I've been very interested in benign masochism. So you just mentioned kind of the hot water. And I've been very interested in the idea psychologically of like why we enjoy painful things in transient moments. So scalding water after like being outside, like in, in, in your shower or your bath, and there's something about it for a momentary moment for a momentary level that you love it. Spicy foods. And then like like what if you ever twist an ankle or like injure your elbow and you just kind of like putting all of your weight on it just a little bit to see oh. like like huh. This is so interesting. This really does hurt. So there is like a pleasure about it. You wouldn't advertise to your friends like let's go injure ourselves and then just poke that injury against a metal fence. But like what like what is that? What is that? Like what leads human beings to have that realm of pleasure, which no other species has evolved to have that kind of pleasure? Yeah, I think it, I think there was a movie in the 90s um, where there's this character called the Gimp. Who's in a box? Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. I, <laughs> I think it's it's a little bit of that that S and M that playfulness that like love like the the sweet with the sour right. I do think that there's an element of like you know, and I want I actually want to go dive right into this because you're all about curiosity. I think there's a curiosity like when you were saying all that, I was like, I don't like pain. A little bit, but but um, you know, if I'm like lifting weights or something, that little bit of like, you know, stretching the muscle, but um, but I do, I think like for me, it's around like un- knowing your limits and like knowing that your body tells you when, right? 
and, and that that there's a curi- I think there's a curiosity around it when it's like when you hurt yourself and you're like, let me see how this feels. Oh man, that hurt a lot. Okay, I'm not, I, now I know I don't need to like lean into that third degree burn. I know it's <laughs> it really hurt that I just mandolin my pinky half off. <laughs> you know, so I think it's curiosity. I don't know. I mean, do you think of this as a curiosity thing, or you think this is a this is something deeper and more entrenched psychologically? I think there's I think there's a few categories. I do think one of them is, as you're describing, it's kind of as if the secret to working out and lifting weights or or to run is you have to push your body beyond its limit because your body likes homeostasis. It's right. it's, it's, it's miserly. It doesn't want to use any more energy than it's possible because there's always the possibility is as you walk home from the gym, someone tries to rob you and your brain has a vigilant center which is always ready for, can something affect your survival? Hey, is there a reproductive chance as you're meeting somebody as you walk out of here? So it saves energy. So one part is a test run in a safe environment of how much can you handle? And then another one is there's just this joyous element of you are such a powerful being and you empower yourself by intentionally entering into these painful arenas Hmm. where – you're going to go a, go a little bit dark, but the darkness feels good, and that's that's something that's it's not necessarily S and M and B and D. It's 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 an everyday thing, and I wonder at what age those joys start. I know with my ten year old, she does not have that pleasure of going anywhere near her injured parts of her body. But so yeah, I don't think my kids. Yeah, my like I have a 12, 12 year old and a nine year old. Nope. They're not there yet, at least. I mean, and, and you know, but but to your point, I think it, I do think it ha- it comes down to like starting to push yourself right in these different ways, right? And 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 I think that every personality is different. And and like my like my mom's a good example. Like I mean, my mom's like a bookworm and nerd and never had any interest in sports, and that just wasn't her deal, right? And so I could never see her like she like she was not down to go get super sore, you know. Um, whereas I can remember being like young, like, I don't know, nine, 10 and playing soccer. And I was like, I'm going to go fuck that kid up. And I remember knowing I'd fuck them up when I felt them, when I impacted them, right. Hit them. And I was like, all right, now I know that, that now it's on. Right. And I remember attributing and it is a little pain involved with like body checking somebody. And I remember thinking, oh, I like this. And that, I mean, I ended up, dude, I ended up becoming D1 athlete, right? So that I think that oh, there's... no kidding. Wow. Yeah. So not in soccer. soccer. I was, oh, no, wrestling. I was a wrestler, which is, which is, and a rugby player, which are both super crazy high impact sports. So I do think that there's a personality aspect of this where it's like some people love that stuff and some people don't. Um, I liked it lifting. Like, I, dude, I lifted like crazy all through like high school and college. And it was like, dude, I would just sit there after being sore. And I was like, oh, if I didn't, if I wasn't super sore, it wasn't a good workout, you know? So I wonder if that's, you know, teach their own. Right. But, but I, and I don't think that's a curiosity thing. I think that's a push myself to the limits, you know? Well, there's, yeah. I mean, there, there is a question. I mean, thinking of your, you know, your, your life successes is training, training youth to engage in those activities because, there is so much busy work, so much administrative work, so much painful aspects of being an adult and it's, and that aren't pleasurable. There's some degree of these are these are the training grounds. So the idea of 
you know, in in the on the field for rugby, soccer, on the mat for wrestling, is that in these parameters, there are boundaries of how much physical violence and how much how much you could do to yourself that's socially acceptable. But the notion that for a, for a circumscribed period of time, I can change gears and match my behavior to be as violent as possible to acquire these goals is to what degree does that have a residual effect where you can violently hold yourself to standards that are seemingly impossible. So when you have to have those 16-hour days to make deadlines and when you have to make sure you get your taxes done and you couldn't find – basically, you know, in terms of you couldn't outsource it because nobody was available. So you have to learn it all yourself. These are things that as a human, we can be we can be more psychologically flexible as an adult if we have these forums to train ourselves when we're younger. And this is why I push all my kids into sports is it doesn't matter how good they are. It's just that you're learning that you can be bored and you can handle strain more than you ever thought you could. And this will this will be a great gift to you later in life. I love that. Yeah. And actually, I was just going to go there because you talk about harnessing negative, uncomfortable states, you know, to to pursue, you know, to, to become stronger. Right. And so we're talking about that right now. And in, and in your TED talk, you know, you, I wrote something down and said, you know, you know, that we when we pursue what we care about, despite the negative pain, that 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 is where greatness comes from. And, 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 and that is how we become better human being. Talk talk to us more about that. Yeah, I mean, so I'll tell you the the emotion that people have the most allergic allergic reaction to in the world, particularly men, which is anger, and it's this notion that we lose control, we're gonna our relationships will deteriorate, and then we're not gonna be able to communicate things in an effective manner. But I argue that anger is often the seed for all all civil rights, all. All improvements in your relationship start from some level of anger. So if you think about it as a speedometer, you've got irritation and you have you have anger, you have uh, you have rage, you can work your way up to get harder, faster, more intense levels. And there's something about there is if you think about um, the gay rights liberation movement in the 70s, they don't get to gay marriage in 10 years without righteous indignation, which is high levels of anger. And you get you don't get to the point of, um, re, you know, real estate appraisers that decide of if it's a household with a bunch of pictures of a black family versus a white family, you're going to get like a, you know, 30 to 40 percent sometimes reduction in the appraisal of a house. You don't get to you don't get to reduce that without righteous indignation, anger, rage expressed effectively and publicly make sure that other people are aware of this, um, not for not for social likability points, because this is an issue that should be addressed. And if you removed anger from the human biological system, you don't get the the reduction in tribal warfare that you do in terms of making sure that the minorities, whether it's demographic, whether that's people that don't look like you, whether it's people that don't think like you, you don't get access to opportunities without a road that's paved with a little bit of anger and a little bit of disappointment and a little bit of sadness that occurs there. And if you are unwilling to express them, you might acquire opportunities, but at a slower speed because social evolution doesn't move as fast without these without this emotional residue that is great at persuading other people this is a cause worth fighting for. 
Hey gang, Darius Mishaza here. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. So listen, uh, I know we have a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business owners out there that listen to the show. And, and so right now, if you're one of those folks and you're doing, let's call it a bare minimum of seven figures and above in your business, then what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you an offer right now. How would you like to get your hands on the frameworks that I actually used to scale my last company, which started off as a small little seven-figure company? to over $100 million in annual revenue. And I did it in less than two years and I did it without costly growing pains and without the headaches that, that you usually experience when, you're, when you are scaling your businesses. So if you're one of those folks and you're trying to grow your company, but you're, you're finding yourself stuck in that day-to-day, if you're one of the listeners and you're getting grinded, this is your respite from getting grinded on your business, you're listening to our show, uh, and you're dealing with the breakdowns, you're dealing with inefficiencies, and you know you got that firefighter suit on and and all the problems lining on your desk and you're you're not doing the work you're supposed to be doing which is working on the business instead of in it then what i'm about to talk to you about for the next call 60 seconds this is precisely for you real quickly though if you don't already know this about me prior to starting the greatness machine i spent 20 years of my life as a founder and ceo of real world companies and during that time, I actually grew my companies to over $1.2 billion with the B in bootstrap revenue. In fact, uh, we scaled our, my last company from 30 to 1,000 employees, and we did it in just 36 months. And we did it all by using a three-step framework that I call my scale map method. So that, of course, brings us to the purpose of this here mid-roll ad. Yes, this is what the podcast producers call these things. Uh, recently, I created a 30-minute training. And what it does is it walks you step-by-step through all of my scale map method frameworks. And you can watch it right now for free when you go to DariusScale.com. That's my first name, Darius, scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And what these frameworks do is they fix, they simplify, and they streamline every single aspect of your business. And they do it without the need for complicated scaling systems that are typically way too difficult and way too time-consuming for a busy CEO like you and for my, like myself was to implement. So if you want a simple and you want a proven path to remove yourself from the day-to-day operations, just like I did, so that you can do what you're supposed to be doing, which is leading your company to record growth without the headaches and without the growing pains, go to DariusScale.com. That's www.DariusScale.com. Watch the short video and I'll see you guys on the inside. Now, back to the show. Oh, I mean, I love that. Uh, my brain went into two totally different directions. Direction one was without anger, you get a bunch of folks at our 30th and 20th year high school reunions who we make jokes about later. And with anger, you get, I, I've been watching The Last Dance, which is Michael Jordan, uh, like the story of the Bulls. Yeah. And dude, that dude he would create fake stories to piss himself off. <laughs> like fake, he'd make up shit that didn't happen. He's like, that dude talks shit to me in the game that never talks shit to him just so he'd get fired up, just so he'd win the next game. And I was watching that and I was like, fuck, man. I mean, first of all, you're like kind of questioning psychology a little bit. You're like, man, someone needs to hug him more. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, right. How messed up is Michael Jordan? Because you don't hear that much in the documentary about his personal life and him being a father. Dude, I, bear, I they don't even show his wife. I don't think through, through the whole thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah, which is yeah. interesting. Yeah, there was there was a very. In, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stories, but one that stands out, um, Darius, from that was that gets understated is when he came back from being a baseball player for the White Sox, returned back to the Chicago Bulls, was playing a 
non-public, non-media event of all professional players. And there was a young guy who just graduated University of Connecticut. And Michael Jordan created this fake narrative that he talked trash of like, hey, listen, you're too old. You can't keep up with me. I'm the new. I'm the new star. You're the old Michael Jordan. And he needed this adversary. He created this nemesis out of this young 22-year-old kid. And that was the reason that he like – he basically wowed everyone there, and that was the moment people realized, oh, Michael Jordan is ready to come back from baseball and can play with the big boys and play basketball again at the same level. And then his Hall of Fame speech, most people have this, this real good 30 minutes of gratitude. Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech was all about everyone who dismissed him, disregarded him, and rejected him over his career. And he got a lot of heat. And what I want to do you know, in this segment here about the value of indignation is argue that if you took away that motivational lever of retaliation and um, and adversarial collaborations from Michael Jordan, you don't get Michael Jordan's greatness. No, none. And it's and it's worth thinking of anyone who is a leader or member of a group. To what degree are you undermining someone's human potential because you want people to be collaborative and kind, but they react well to aggressiveness and adversarial relationships. Yeah, man. I, it, it's so, it's, when you say it like that, it's like, dude, there is no MJ. This guy changed like the world of basketball. And then like, in a lot of ways it's become like a this warrior hero for millions and millions of people. If he literally didn't make up crazy shit about himself, about who wronged him. <laughs> right. And it's like, like he, I heard that in his hall of fame speech, he was like, just beating the shit out of his high school coach who didn't make him be varsity when he was 14. Like, and he's dude, the guy's like, 50 years old, 60 years old, like, the, like I don't know how he's playing in his, like, what, late 50s now? He's sitting there talking shit about a guy that wronged him 40 years ago that he has now since proven, like, undoubtedly that he was, maybe he was right then, you know, but he was wrong overall, right? And, and so I, I see stuff like that, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I'd love your thoughts on that, but I wanted, I, I want to ask a question because I think there's the positive, right? That's the positive. We're talking about like a really good example of a positive that came out of that or these these righteous indignations like from a civil rights movement or if you talk about I think what's Stonewall in like New York with the gay rights movement. Like those are righteous indignations. And and Michael Jordan created his own righteous indignations that he went then and fought against, right? But psychologically, and I'm a person, you know, you, you're learning a little bit about me. I'm I'm a fucking crazy motherfucker that sits there and like beats myself up for to be better all the time. Like, I'll get off the show and I'm like, why did I do that at this moment of the show? And I'll go and try to make a better show next time. But there's a side of me that's like, dude, just be fucking nice to yourself, you know? And and so you talk about, you know, this idea of having, you know, creating distance to create this idea of acceptance. So there's creating distance so that you can not necessarily be so hard on yourself, but having some curiosity around why am I thinking that? Like, if Michael Jordan, I, again... I, I'm I'm happy he didn't have that curiosity because he probably maybe wouldn't have been, done what he did, but but walk us through that. Like, is it that, like yes, you can through righteous indignation create greatness, but how does that also overlay with having some curiosity around why am I feeling this way? If if at the end of the day I want well being. Yeah, no, I'm glad, Darius. I'm glad you brought this up. So there's we could think about this as there's a combination of three elements that can improve our quality of life in difficult situations. So we're playing with um, self distancing, as you described it. We're talking about um, diffusing 
unwanted thoughts, memories, and sensations. And we're talking about a level of self-compassion. So those are the kind of three elements we're kind of, kind of merging together here. Um, and then, so there's a, there's a number of ways of doing this. One, so one strategy is to separate when we talk to ourselves and we don't talk to anyone more than ourselves. So what you described after a podcast is me after a pickleball match is I'll, I'll, all I'll do is be like, oh my God, like, how can you not angle the paddle? Like, why are you always hitting it at full power? Like if you slow it, everyone expects you to hit hard because you have, I have like a, a lot of meat on my arms. But if I slow this down, how come I can't retain this for freaking when I'm playing the game and only right afterwards? So I can beat myself up. So that's, there's two forms of self-talk. What, so that form of self-talk we can call brooding, and that is the maladaptive form of self-conversations that happens there. And I'm focusing on why did this happen? What's wrong with me? What's the origin of this? And I'm playing with I'm playing with trying to I'm trying to try to figure this out and be my own therapist in terms of. But I'm not trying to figure out the here and now. I'm not trying to think about what's going to help me in the next game. I'm trying to make sense of this, and that's problematic. The other way of self-talk, we can call it as pondering. And that's basically like this reflective thoughts of like, huh, like what are some ways that I could take away and create closure from this really crappy pickleball game that I just played? Um, maybe there's some lessons that I can write down. So I can write down, um, stop moving when someone hits the ball at you and just plant your feet. Um, uh, you have more time than you think, so don't get so anxious with your hand wobbling while you're at the net. Your hand has to be stable because a stable shot is going to be a more controlled shot. So as I'm pondering this, I'm turning this into specific things, lessons learned, it is – I'm still ruminating, but it's adaptive. And actually, one thing that I do is I have this journal that I've been keeping for, I don't know, like 15 years now. It's the three ex three extraordinary moments of each day. Now, they could be really problematic and evil, like some guy cuts me off on the road and we get into an argument on the side of the road. That's the extraordinary moment. It's not ordinary. And I'll mm -hmm. write, a, write about it. And I'll write about also like how I could have handled myself better. And then I can also write about like how entertaining it was to – uh, laugh about this with my daughter who's in the car was like, Oh my God, I've never seen you so angry before. You were like, you I feel so safe around you. And yet I'm worried you're going to get killed. So <laughs> I write all these things down. And after, after a bad podcast interview, a bad class that I teach, and this bad is my self assessment, sure. a bad pickleball match. I write down what happened and then um, bring closure to it by, all right, lessons learned for the next one. And if you really think about, lessons learned for the next one that stops the ruminatory cycle mm. that leads you into you know mm. downward depressive spirals it, it reduces self-loathing the other element of this of self-talk is and this is from ethan cross's work in university of michigan if we can talk about ourselves in the third person this is why i like the extraordinary moments journal i'm mm -hmm. writing about myself in the third person I'm like todd could not hit any shots at the net because his hand was shaking back and forth. If only Todd could just slow things down. Mm. So there's a distancing that's happening because I'm not saying I should, I should have done this. It would have been better if I did this. I'm talking about, there's this guy, Todd, that I'm watching a video of in my head, which is what we're doing. We're watching a retrospective 
action movie of what happened before. So write it that way. It removes the emotional attachment to it mm. and allows us to kind of think about knowledge, skills, and experiences that are worth retaining in our, in our self-edited life narrative. Oh, I love that, man. Like just this idea of separating yourself. And this is about, you know, separation from the ego, right? Like, because when it, I'm in it, you know, then it's and then, then there's a rumination and an obsession. Like I got to make and then you're just in the spiraling moment. And and I love this idea of like putting yourself in the third person because it's like, hey, there's this guy, Darius, who's like whiteboard. I mean, I'm looking at the whiteboard right now of, of me whiteboarding my you know business ideas over the weekend as opposed to like me being in the, that business idea and me stuck in what do I want to do and how I could do it better and and all these things. So, you know, one of the questions I would ask you, though, is you know, this, I guess what I'm hearing you say is we got to create some space, right? Some psychological space. And, and it sounds like you use this idea of a journal to do it. What, what are other, or what are other ways you recommend for folks that maybe are less, that are not great at it? And, you know, especially I think people that are achievers, a lot of our listeners are achievers. You know, the reason they're achievers is they're, they're like, they're probably like us where they're like, I'm just going to get after it. Right. And when yeah. it doesn't go my way, I get fired up and I go fix. Right. But that, gets to a point maybe i'm just you know in my you know early mid 40s now where i'm like all right man i don't want to keep beating myself up when things don't go my way i want to like learn from it and i want to have i want to naturally create space i want to i want to have a I, I i don't mind getting fired up i mind getting fired up and being you know aggressive with myself what are some ways that that you know methods maybe that you recommend with clients or, or to your students around really creating a habit of building space for oneself no, this is great. I'll give three right off the top of my head. Um, this is great in the workplace because you don't necessarily have time to stop, pivot, and go open up more writing to do for yourself. It sounds like a homework assignment. Right. So three things. One, ask yourself, were there third parties present that provide a perspective that you haven't attended to? So mm -hmm. go back to my pickleball game example. I'm playing with three other players there. None of them complained about my play. None of them were upset at me. Um, objectively, we all got, in fact, there was this ton of laughter and kind of a lot of self-deprecating self humor. And so it, to properly describe that moment in my, in my day is to include their, include their perspectives in there. Mm. So that's number one. Because um, we often are, are much harder critics of ourselves, especially you know your listeners seeking out greatness and maximizing their potential. We are better, bigger critics than other people. Get those other people into the storyline in terms of what they what from the, what from their if them being a fly on the wall, they saw what you saw. Second one, um, if you were giving advice to your friend about this exact same situation, what would you do? We are much kinder to our friends. We are amazing. Mm. Last night, I went to a brewery with my friend who's about to have a ten hours of brain surgery. He's my age, my one of my closest friends from high school, and. When I talk to him about an impending surgery where he has a good chance that this might be the last time I see him, um, I am I am bleeding with compassion. I'm asking tons of questions. And then I'm also having the difficult conversation of, hey, listen, like to what degree have you planned for if this doesn't work out? And then he's going through it. And the reason that I don't mind having that conversation and most people find it taboo is because – I know he wants to unearth this. I know he wants to talk and actually see if he's doing this, you know, quote unquote, correctly. Like, how do you tell 
your kids? How do you tell your romantic partner? How do you how do you make amends with people when you when you have a date when someone's going to enter your skull and give you brain surgery for doing right. this? And and so I am trying to offer like a gift of like, hey, bounce all the stuff over me and maybe I'll find some maybe I can validate or maybe I can say, hey, I think you a better way of doing this might be this and this. So have that thought of what advice, if this was my friend, what advice would I give them? You'll be more mm-hmm. compassionate. The mm-hmm. third one that you play is, is start messing with time perspectives. So think to yourself, well, how am I going to feel and think about this a year from now and five years from now? And I have an article that comes out in three hours on my, my provoked newsletter. It's going to be about um, the hidden destruction of ostracism in the workplace. And I mm-hmm. and while I'm making the argument that we underestimate the power of people being rejected and ostracized at work, when you do ask yourself, how am I going to feel and think about this five years from now, it's just going to be one more moment where you were rejected in your life. Mm. It's still going to be painful, but your nerve endings won't be exposed the same way. And if you can think about five years later, 10 years later, it could just give you enough oomph to stick in a situation and burrow through it until you get home and you could take that hot bath and kind of put your feet in the shiatsu foot massage that goes in there. And sometimes for high performers, all you need is big. Can you last this experience? Because we do have the ability to say, I am aborting now and going home because I don't need to take this much static. You guys are all and gals are all being pricks to me. And there's, I, I'm at an age where I'm just going to walk out. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Mm. We need most more often than not to stay in that situation to realize that things aren't as bad as we think we are. And playing with a time perspective allows us to stick in there and persevere a little bit longer where maybe, maybe there'll be a shift where people will be like, you know what? I feel like we've been too hard on you, Todd. Darius, um, we've been we've been we've been criticizing your ideas for the last half an hour. It's the the murder board. I think this has actually been unhelpful, and this gone went a little bit too far. And I apologize. If you left at the point, the peak of the highest criticism, you would have missed the mea culpa. Is the mea culpa always appearing? No, but it's worthwhile regularly to create a habit of sticking with the suck. Because sometimes people realize they push too far, they prodded too far, and time perspective helps you with that. Oh, I love that, man. This is so, this is so good. Um, by the way, I was doing that selfishly for myself, listeners, just so you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that makes that makes a good interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, screw all you. This is all about me. Um, no, uh, half joking aside, um, I want to I shift over to the new book, man. The Art of Insub- Insubordination. Um, congrats on that, by the way. That's incredible. Um, and and like I, I, I think it was two podcasts ago. I wrote a book called The Core Value Equation, and so I understand like dude, writing a book is a lot of fucking work. <laughs> you Six know, years. Wow, that's crazy, man. So tell us, like, like, tell us about the book. What do you mean by this idea of? Because you talk a lot about principled insubordination in the book. What do you mean by this idea of principled insubordination? Tell us where the book, like, maybe where, the, the idea of where the book came from. Yeah. Um. So this was pre-Trump. This was pre-COVID. This was pre. The word "woke" I don't think was being used regularly. Definitely not as much as it is now. <clears throat> 
um, at the time, this was there were interesting societal trends. This was when you had uh, the Arab Spring. Uh, so you know, Twitter ends up being this vehicle where you've got people in the Middle East who are able to fight totalitarian regimes by you know quickly putting a few characters online and getting it to access to you know embassies in other countries. Um, so you have that uprising that's happening there. You had. Uh, as we talked about before, kind of the decline in religiosity in the country, but nothing's replaced it in terms of what communal communal events do we have besides concerts and sports events that brings people together of different demographics, of different political ideologies. Um, and then you have the number of people who are no longer staying with a job for more than 10 years that the average person, when I started writing this book, had... 12 jobs during their adult lifehood. This is in their mid-20s to adulthood. And what does that mean psychologically, not just for individuals, but groups, teams, and and organizations and societies when you don't have that economic stability and you don't have that social stability? And then another trend that really affected me was social mobility, where there's a really interesting trend that very few people are talking about that people are more inclined to move far away from their childhood environments, their families and live to where the work is. So they're choosing work as the guiding fitting with the book that you write as the guiding value and compass for their decision making, as opposed to their social relationships and the other elements of well-being in their lives, physical well-being, spiritual well-being, um, social well-being. That happens there. And then what does that do to society when people are just roaming around to different areas and the roots aren't strong in terms of a community being able to raise, help you raise your children and a community to help you figure out what do I care about and where do I belong? And this made me want to write a book where while the title's meant to be provocative, The Art of Insubordination, and I talk about principled dissenters and principled rebels. To be honest, this book is about how do you create a more utopian society and then the, the, the mechanism of action are individuals who are willing to dissent from mainstream thinking, orthodox approaches and say, hey, I think we need to pause in this. I think this might be problematic and dysfunctional. And also individuals that say, you know what? I'm going to live a life that's a little bit left of center from everyone else. I'm not harming anyone else's well-being. Um, but I'm being a principled rebel, re- rebel because this way that my family has taught me and that my, you know, that my schooling has taught me is not how I want to live. So you have people that have, you know, they graduated like elite schools like Berkeley or Emory, and then they decided of, hey, listen, I don't really care about making more than enough enough money to live and enjoy my weekends, and so I want to open an ice cream parlor. And their parents might have disowned them and felt that they didn't get their money's worth for college. And I'm I'm saying that I have a name for them. I call them niche carvers, that they carved a niche for themselves for it is a rebellion, but it's more personalized that happens there. So it's not always about politics and society. So and and, and this is also, you know, if you end up if you are a gay man living in the Middle East, or if you are a gay black man that lives in the United States, uh, your culture is strongly, unfortunately, against you. And it takes a little bit of rebellion of, despite the friction and static, I choose this lifestyle because I only have one chance of living my life. And this book is about how people can be empowered and how we need these dissenters, even if we disagree with them. So a question on that, because I think obviously us talking about it 
it's easy and doing it is fucking hard. Right. And so, you know, you talk about this idea of rejecting systems and this idea of people, you know, being these dissenters in this way to then, you know, affect change, right. Or whether externally or internally, but, you know, I guess my question for you is, yeah, this, uh, this, this, I guess there, I have two questions. Number one is, how do you do this in a way where it's not painful? And like, what's like the, what, what's like the high level thought around that? And then my second question is, you know, if we're, how do we also then do it where it doesn't become toxic? Right. Because, because if you go ask the woke left and you go ask the, you know, nationalist right, who's Right. They're gonna and they're gonna both say I'm dissenting against the norm, right? And the right. reality is, is I I look at both those people and you know I'll get a little political. I'm like, dude, you quit fucking shit up, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like 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 there's the you know, and so yeah, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. No, these these are great questions. Okay, so the first one is uh, there's really no pre- pain free way of dissenting. So um, here's part of the director's cut. None of this is in the book is uh, what I call the dissenter's dilemma, which is what is useful for the group and society in terms of you pointing out the dysfunctional, problematic, unhealthy ways is going to lead to detriments in happiness and well-being for the individual, at least in the short term. Nobody, as you're saying, nobody on the, the margins of the political left, the political right, want to hear that they're wrong, especially from people in their tribe. So this, mm-hmm. there's a term that psychologists call the black sheep, which is this is it is worse to hear criticisms from someone inside your tribe than someone on the outside, because it's like, hey, I thought you were one of us. Why aren't you have uniform beliefs and views? And why aren't you why aren't you nodding your head and giving a thumbs up to every single thing that we are agree on? You are giving you are weaponizing information for the other side. As opposed to, and it's really hard for people inside of group just to realize is like, listen, the re- I identify so strongly with this group that I'm willing to point out the frailties and take a hit to my well-being um, because I care about, I don't think that you can actually last in a healthy way as, as a group if I don't say something. So right. I've experienced this myself in many ways, but there's much more, much better historical examples. Um, so just, just think about... Um, Right now, for you have, as we're talking right now, we have a, a very large um, climate change bill um, that's going. It's it's going through, you know, um, the Senate and Congress right now, and and President Biden's about to sign it. Well, you have two senators that Democrats hate because they don't automatically give a thumbs up. So you have one from Arizona, one from West Virginia, and there's tons of articles and so much per- social persecution because oh. these people gives don't automatically give a thumbs up. They want to hear and listen the argument because they understand their constituency and they have conflicts of interest. Let's, you know, this gets to your second question. But the point is what I want to argue based on the science, those two senators that disagree with the other Democrats in the party for these bills, they are doing a service because they're making them think, what are the downstream consequences that we haven't considered as I look through the eyes of people who live in West Virginia and people who live in Arizona that happens there? Best case scenario, you realize your arguments are still solid. They would be good for those people in those two, two states. Worst case scenario is you have to rethink this. Is like, you know what? 
I have such a bubble of people that I'm talking to and listening to, I haven't taken a sufficient number of perspectives. And maybe I'm treating this as more time urgent than it needs to when it comes to the environment because it's better to get this right. And there's not a homogenous number of societies in this place called the United States. There are people that live in mountainous environments. There are people that live in desert environments. There are people that live in Utah that have uh, you know, their largest lakes are, are shrinking simultaneously. These three small societies cannot easily come into one umbrella. How do you do that so that all these perspectives are considered? That requires a dissenter. The dissenter will suffer immensely by saying this. Um, so, so I do want to make an argument of it is to be a good group member means saying the things people don't want to hear for the, for the health of the vitality and longevity of mm-hmm. the group. And I wish people to have the courage to disagree when it's required and the intelligence to know when and how to do it, which gets to your second question. So, yeah, going down the second question, which is, you know, if, it's, if, if we say that, hey, we agree that the formula for best success for group long-term, and I'm a big believer in long-termism. I'm a conscious capitalist, which is all about long, the long-term capitalistic society and, and doing what's good, doing great by doing good, right? And so, um, and and we could go and I don't want to go there, but there's a whole argument around the fact that like, like Wall Street mentality is the opposite. It's around short-term. Our current political system is built around short-term. You know, we have these systems that incentivize short-term thinking, Right. So if we're going this other direction, which I really appreciate that your book touches on this and is all about this, is that, no, we are going to say that, hey, if there is a, a, a recipe for long term best, you got to have a little sprinkle of dissent in there and insubordination or maybe it's a cupful. I don't know, depending on the situation to get there. But how do we do it in a way that works? Yeah. So. So here's two two questions the group is going to ask right off the bat, and I'm, let's 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 play with the thought experiment because it's, it's uh, you mentioned politics and it's something I've been thinking about, and I agree it's it's a very short term invested system. You know, you have these these spirals of two years, four year intervals where people have to be you know be voted in or be revoted back in again for another term. Um, that's not designed well. Um, it's hard to think of an alternative system, but think about this. Think about the skills that are required in a presidential debate to be effective versus the skills that are required to be a leader if you win and are then the president of the United States. The, the overlap must be no more than 13% between the two. So you have to be cute, funny, witty, biting, media savvy. You know, this starts from JF, you know, JFK versus Nixon for the first televised debates about this. Um, you, you have to be good at very quick, very quick sound bites, um, describing things in a simplistic but interesting manner. In the real world, as the as a presidential as the president, you're going to have a cabinet of experts and advisors, and so they will help you curate all of the complexities that are in there and be able to process that information is not the same thing as being in a debate and creating like really funny, playful, like interesting advertisements on TV that get your attention. So here's an alternative that a few economists came up with um, in 2007, which was. As opposed to having these televised debates and these forums where you have 15 people vying to be vying to vying to be the candidate for Republicans and vying to be the candidate for Democrats, what if you had um, a 
some sort of an oligarchy system where you decide who doesn't pass the minimal criteria for intelligence, wisdom, perspective, conflicts of interest, and add a few more variables. So let's cut them out. And now that we have smart, well-meaning people who care about patriotism and society and, and the vitality and longevity of society and can understand some geopolitical issues and economics, just a little bit, enough so that your advisors, when they talk to you, you could ask good questions. Once we cross the threshold, perhaps, as these economists say, it should be randomized. So it should, so as opposed to the most socially attractive person wins, once people meet minimum threshold, you randomize it and then think of – you would have literally billions of dollars that are spent every election cycle that can now be sifted over into silos for education for poverty mm. uh, you know you know for environmental reasons and for you know for um you know for you know for thinking about you know security and safety military you know police firefighters librarians you know all these things um reducing the amount of people you know the uh, the revolving door in the criminal justice system mm. billion billions of dollars if you added this randomization two-part process that happened there so the question is how can i present an idea like that and not be told you're freaking fool you don't understand politics and governance and what are you talking about so let me start with just two thoughts here which i did not do right here by the way so if, if people are listening and saying listen this guy's a psychologist not a political scientist what the hell is he talking about good that's how if you hate the idea and you think I'm an imbecile right now, that is what dissenters often experience in a group mm. environment. Great. We've just experienced it. So what could I have done to make it more persuasive? There are two questions that a group asks. The first question is, are you one of us? Do you understand the plight of the group that you're trying to represent and improve? So if I led by saying, how much volunteer work that I've done over the course of my life, pro bono work to help improve the criminal justice system, to improve local political organizations, and I don't have a conflict of interest and actually actually devote myself as a consultant for whether it's um, conservatives or liberals because I'm just interested in the best ideas, don't really care where the hell it comes from, that would actually potentially persuade you. Like, huh, okay, so I can see is that you're – relatively low in bias, you're relatively trustworthy, you seem like you're competent, and you've put skin in the game. So that's I've answered the question of like, do you understand us? Are you one of us? The mm -hmm. second question that, that people ask is, are you a threat or are you something that's worthy of curiosity? And this is where a lot of people get this wrong, where they where they really focus on everything that's problematic and all the dangers that exist and they don't offer an aspirational vision that people can be like, huh, randomizing who becomes president of the United States sounds stupid, but you know, this whole system is pretty ridiculous right now. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me some more about that. Like how would it work? Like, like what's the, and what's, and what do you do on week one when you randomly get picked um, in terms of like, how do you introduce yourself to society of you didn't choose me? Uh, a you know, we, we, we just did um, dice and that, that's the only reason they ended up becoming the president. Like, what do you do in that first week? And you could have some amazing collaborative conversations because I have, I have no idea. Um, but it, it would be, it's interesting to explore these alternatives because 
we don't live in a utopian society. There are still right. kids that live that are living on the streets, homeless, at under the age of fourteen in New York City, my home world over there. That happens there. You've got prisoners that are going to come out in the next year. Hundreds, thousands of prisoners, and th- these environments don't involve any education, any workshops, or any training on how to reintegrate into society. But they're coming back, so I understand that you might dislike them because they engage in criminal activity. But they are coming to your hometowns that happen there. So don't you want them to become more virtuous, more skilled, and more educated so that they're better people than when they came in. I mean, who would say no to that? That happens. But we have people that are saying no. So that should open up some questions about this. So pass these tests. To what degree are you someone that understands the group and are a loyal group member? Don't be humble here. Like reveal all of the things you've done that says, I'm one of you. And then the second one is make it clear is that this is not, this is, this might be a short-term strain but this is not threatening to your livelihood. This is actually going to help you, but you have to spell that out concretely. This is not the place to be abstract about it. Oh man. So much, so much awesomeness in in, in that whole idea. I mean, I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, is is he serious? Like, and, and, and I'm like, that's a terrible idea. And then I, and then I landed on, dude, we should have it be over a game of backgammon. Like that's how we're gonna like like that's how it's gonna like it's gonna be like it's like hey like you guys met uh, like because you would like you wouldn't have some of the issue you have right now which is like hey should we have two eighty year olds running against each other it's like in no world should that happen right like no offense to eighty year olds but like I don't want unless unless science gets a lot better I don't want to be considered for a presidency when I'm eighty right and so like there should be some disqualifying like characteristics you know when it comes to who gets to run the most powerful country on earth I don't know maybe right and then once you qualify all that it's like I love that idea of hey like let's get curious and let's try to like do it in a way where where it makes sense for the betterment of society to your point and I mean we we could I'm a huge advocate of of criminal justice when people get out right and like that's such a good example of hey they're coming back to your town you know how, how do you want to support them? How do you want to support, you know, the 14 year old homeless kids? Because I always tell people, I'm like, Hey, listen, I want to know what political party is going to fix, make us the number one education in the world, have the lowest poverty rates, have the best educated and the best healthcare. And until we're number one in all those categories, everyone can go fucking yeah. pound sand. Right. That's how I look at it. Right. And so though, but to your point, it's like, Hey, I have a good idea. Let's, and it's a crazy idea to a certain point, but Let's just take those resources and pour them in and sell people on the bet the betterment of the that crazy idea. That's 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 fantastic. I want to I want to go because you're talking about this idea of of I guess dissenting for a bigger cause, right? And I know we're we're, we're running late, late on time here, so I just want to end on this one last idea. Is if I'm trying to let's say I want to make big change happen, and I want to do it with your model of principled insubordination, principled dissent. You know, and you talk about being the living embodiment of that cause. So Darius is the living embodiment of the random president cause, okay, which is fought over a game of backgammon <laughs> in Iowa where it all starts, right? And so how does one remain flexible? You know, I'm going to go out there and be this living embodiment. So I want to be flexible to these different, you know, groups, but still have integrity in what I believe, right? I'm going to be flexible to try to win you over, but I still want to maintain that integrity so that I'm not, I guess, sugarcoating myself 
or bullshitting or, or diluting that integrity to get what I want done. Because I think that there's real risk of that. If we're, if we're going to promote insubordination, is it real insubordination or is it watered down insubordination? And, and I guess, what are your thoughts about doing that with integrity? Yeah. So integrity, I mean, so th- this is not a book about insubordination. It's about principled rebels. So what, so what is that principle right. that comes in there? Um, so there's a few things. One is, so, I mean, I have an equation. It's, it's deviance, authenticity, and contribution, those are that's the numerator of this equation. So uh, it's it's first recognizing of there is a conflict with the norms that are being espoused by the mainstream right now. So that's the deviance that happens there. Okay. So that's kind of a, an element of of, rec- of recognizing. Listen, this is problematic. Um, I'll give a, a politicized example that will cause some people to love this, some people to hate this. One of the problems that led to all of the the mask the mask debates that occurred around the world was when the Center for Disease Control, which is a very evidence-based, data-based organization that we should trust wholeheartedly, they made a horrible, horrible decision when they had um, racial protests around the country. They publicly stated of like, listen, this is understandable. We support it because the cause is, is too important. As soon as they said that, it was like you allowed the adversaries of evidence-based thinking to say, wait a second, that makes no sense whatsoever. We're supposed to quarantine, we're supposed to wear masks, but if the cause is good enough and the concert is amazing enough with the best bands possible, then all bets are off. And so that set unnecessary seeds of doubt. And I think we should really deconstruct when we, when we do this problematically and say, let's never do that again. Um, the CDC... Is not there's a lot of great organizations that are around um, how we relate to each other to reduce ageism, sexism, <clears throat> and racism. The CDC is not one of those organizations. So outsource to someplace else because your job is to reduce pathogens and keep people alive and prevent health problems that happen. That's what you're doing. Like don't mix and match other systems that happen there. Um, so to be principled. You have to have a con- a contribution part. There has to be you're doing this because you care about individuals and the group. It's not for likability. It's not to gain status in your tribe that happens there. Those could be offshoots or spandrels. That's the evolutionary term by Stephen Jay Gould, where it's almost like an accident of you approaching how to create a better society where we value scientists a little bit more in the realm where we put athletes on a pedestal so it's an uphill battle but for doing this the question is are you would i be doing this because i'm more of a scientist than an athlete there's there's a conflict of interest there um Mm -hmm. so that so the contribution part for me would be questionable if that was the path that i was pursuing if it ended up being is that you were concerned about kids being treated as if they are in every racial group that they are homogenous, a monolithic entity, that every black kid thinks the same, um, should think the same, has the same political affiliation with liberals and Democrats. That kind of attitude is racist. I mean, if you just go to any dictionary definition, the idea of there can be variability in the thinking and the feeling and the doing if you're white, but not if you're black, that's racist. So 
But you calling this out is you're against this ism that happens there. Will you get friction to go back to what we talked about before? Will it be painful for you? Absolutely. You'll be called a racist. But there's something to be said about being for in terms of contribution, you want to reduce the degree to which proxy variables that are not related to excellence and are not related to personality and are not related to work performance are being used as indicators of those things such as race, try to reduce that. One of them is raising questions about treating individuals as if they are automatic representatives of their group and that everyone is actually, um, you know, there's no variability in how people think, feel, and behave that happens there. So this is something I've been speaking out about because at a university settings, um, we treat, you know, as if, as if all black students are kind of this one single thing, but nobody's saying that for, you know, for white and Middle Eastern students that happen there. They're, they're allowed to deviate in terms of, of who they are and what their personalities are that happen there. Um, and we have to do the same thing, you know, if you're at the, the, le- the left extreme. Um, part of the principled element is asking yourselves, by you trying to stop uh, the racial atrocities of the past of being taught in, in elementary school systems, are you helping or harming kids and society? And I would say that the evidence is very clear that it harms society by not learning from our past mistakes. It's, it's why we learn about the Holocaust. Um, you know, it's, it's why we learn about uh, Christopher Columbus, um, both the, the positives and the negatives simultaneously that happens there. It's why we learn about kind of, uh, you know, American Indians in terms of how they were displaced. And it's, it's never been kind of rect- you know rectified today in society. <clears throat> Why would racial atrocities not fall into that category in the first place? Now, where you get to problems is if you treat 2022 as it's the same thing as 1961. And so we have to be able, part of the way of bridging that communication is saying the contribution part is teaching children to discern how society is progressing maybe not progressing at the, at the trajectory and speed that you wanted to and allowing that degree of critical thinking so that you don't have to say um, thumbs up or thumbs down. It's, hey, let's take into every individual element of society specifically. So if my, I, I have a daughter that's now entering fifth grade, I want her to learn that where the, one of the places in America for the greatest racial disparities is in the criminal justice system where plea bargains occur and they're offered so that they don't even get due process in the system. More inclined if you're a black, a black person being prosecuted versus a white person being prosecuted. That pivot, that very specific pivot point is one of the biggest racial differences in society right now. Now, in terms of admissions into a university, especially on the East Coast and West Coast, those racial differences are are becoming smaller to almost non-existent that happen there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have to be honest and say, in this domain, that's still a problem. In this domain, we are over-reporting a problem. Here, we're under-reporting a problem. And here, we're describing it perfectly. And when we that's how the education system should operate as opposed to everything is a problem and everything at the same magnitude. Now you, can, now you lost potential allies and adherents because you're not being honest and fair about how things operate. And this is part of the principled element of trying to dissent and disagree in these conversations. Oh, man. Mic drop moment. 
I mean, <laughs> oh, I have a feeling you and I could go on for two more hours. This is this is like I'm like I'm like I'm just getting started here, um, but man, we ran out of time. Um, gosh, Todd, what a what an amazing conversation, man! I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. You know, everything from you know your work on curiosity to this this idea of the art of subordination and and really being thoughtful around data and being thoughtful around contribution and how can we as individuals, you know, position ourselves to do that. I, I, I'm really excited for the work and, and where it's going to go. So thank you so much, man, for being on the show. Super appreciate this. Oh, your energy, your profanity laden uh, conversations. I mean, this is, this, <laughs> this is the stuff I dream of when I'm on a conversation and a podcast. So thanks for creating this kind of warm, playful, because th- these these they're serious topics, but when you're just hanging out, they should be playful. These conversations. Yeah, no, Thank it's a, 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 the pleasure and the honor is mine. So, look, people that want to get the book or learn more about you, or uh, you know, how can they hook up with you? What are the best ways to connect? Well, I mean, my my name toddcash.com. You could sign up for my uh, my what is that sub Substack newsletter? Provoked next issue goes out and. Um, in a couple of minutes on the, the cost of ostracism. Um, that's free. And then Art of Insubordination is available on Amazon and every bookstore in the country, hopefully, even, yeah. a, couple, even a couple airports. Nice. Um, guys, go out there, support the book, sign up for uh, Substack for what's the name of the newsletter again? Provoked. Provoked. Yeah. I'm, I can't wait to sign up for that. And um, man, go support Todd because the work you're doing is, is much needed and it's incredible. I really appreciate you, brother. Hey, same here. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, listen, if you love the show, please uh, support us, share it. Uh, the only way this thing grows is by more people learning about it. And uh, talk to you till next time. Peace out. Love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on. So that you don't miss any of our future episodes, we have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests. 
like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.